together. Sorry to interrupt the conversation. That was, of course, that was amazingly effective. That was brilliant. <laughs> so, um, I'm, it's my pleasure to be chairing this uh, panel on crossing <coughs> disciplines and thinking about contagion from different disciplinary perspectives. Um, and what I'd like to do, just by way of a very kind of brief preamble, is to open this panel by invoking the notion of transdisciplinarity a concept which is most fully and, I think, passionately articulated by the theoretical physicist who may be known to some of you, um, Basarab Nicolescu, who's a major advocate of the transdisciplinary reconciliation between science and the humanities. And it seems to be the notion of contagion uh, is absolutely, um, in the case of thinking about contagion, absolutely requires this notion of a kind of transdisciplinary approach, hence the point of this afternoon's conversation. In 1994, Nicolescu, along with colleagues Lima de Freitas and Edgar Morton, uh, produced the Charter of Transdisciplinarity at the First World Congress of Trans Transdisciplinarity in Brazil. And I just wanted to quote um, a couple of um, articles from the Charter as a way of opening up the panel. So the first thing they observe as a preamble in this, in this Charter is that, quote, the present proliferation of academic and non-academic disciplines is leading <coughs> to an exponential increase of knowledge which makes a global view of the human being impossible. So this idea of kind of the endless proliferation of disciplines making it ever more difficult for us to define and discuss concepts such as the human and indeed perhaps the notion of contagion. <coughs> and Article 3 of the Charter reads, and I quote again, Transdisciplinarity complements disciplinary approaches. It occasions the emergence of new data and new interactions from out of the encounter between disciplines. It offers us a new vision of nature and reality. Transdisciplinarity does not strive for mastery of several disciplines, but aims to open all disciplines to that which they share and to that which lies beyond them. So in this spirit, then, I open up this panel in order to help us think across disciplines, to co-create here notions in this conversation of contagion. And to do that, I'd like to welcome four esteemed colleagues. Um, we're joined by Stephen Frosch uh, from Psychosocial Studies, Birkbeck, Richard Mann from Mathematics in Leeds, Emily Senior from English at Birkbeck, and Matthew Weirt, formerly of this parish, but now <laughs> in the Law Department, but now um, at Portsmouth. Um, each of the panellists have been asked to talk for 10 minutes about ideas of contagion, infection and transmission from their disciplinary perspectives. And then perhaps, if they feel they want to and they have time, to think about how <coughs> these conceptualisations might affect our understanding of theatre and performance. But what we will do once each of the colleagues have spoken is to kind of open this up to a conversation um, between ourselves and the floor. So I'm going to hand over <coughs> to Stephen, who's going to kick us off. <coughs> Thank you, Joe. Um, I just want to start by congratulating Finton and the other uh, organisers of this for having some people left at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> I don't think I've ever I don't think I've ever been to a conference where that's actually happened before. So it's, it's really really impressive. So well done. And obviously, something very compelling has happened here. Um, also, just listening just now to Joe, um, just to take up very quickly this business about discipline. I mean, my own discipline doesn't really exist. 
Um, psychosocial studies at Burbeck emerged as a kind of breakaway when I fell out with the psychology department here. <laughs> and, and because I had influence, which was very nice in the college, I went off and formed my own department, and now it's big and nice. And we see ourselves as a transdisciplinary space in our own right, drawing on lots of disciplinary uh, cultures and also trying to critique them. So I think that needs to be held in mind. Um, and I obviously haven't got time to elaborate it here in these very few minutes. Think about this issue of contagion now. Uh, um, what really came to mind most powerfully is the way in which the psychosocial is an attempt to understand the interpenetration of human subjects with one another. So the notion of a social subject is of a, let's say a person, if we're allowed to use the word person, let's say a person, so, uh, as, as a kind of nodal point in which various kinds of social and um, unconscious forces meet, all sorts of forces meet. And so we've already got the sense of something that crosses boundaries. Uh, I mean, historically, we're interested, for instance, in how psychology, sociology uh, act as a way of splitting the human subject as if it exists in different spheres when it all, it all comes together. So I'm already trying to talk about some modes of interpenetration. I want to think, though, in this, in this few minutes, um, to draw on, on one of the strands that feeds into the psychosocial perspective, which is uh, psychoanalysis. It's a very controversial strand within psychosocial studies. Again, I don't have time to do that. Um, but um, it does um, help with a set of concepts around uh, the business of what I'm going to call interpenetration. And here I'm thinking about two different dimensions of interpenetration, horizontal and vertical. So what do I mean by that? <coughs> Again, <coughs> I imagine you've encountered this in all sorts of ways over the last couple of days. First of all, um, horizontal contagion would be the modes of uh, affective interrelationship that occur from one person to another, no, it, at one time, in a community. Let's imagine, for example, uh, in a crowd or in a group where people feel the things that other people feel. Um, or let's imagine it in the psychoanalytic situation where an analyst maybe feels stuff which they believe has been put into them in some way by the patient. Or imagine that you're in a setting where you meet somebody incredibly anxious who actually on the surface seems really calm and you feel anxious in their place. These modes of communication which break down the properties of the, of the individual subject and start to ask us what is it that, that gets infected from one person to another. Um, it's very interesting to look at Freud's terminology here because Freud, Freud was a believer in telepathy. It was very embarrassing, actually, because uh, psychoanalysis was trying to establish itself and Freud in the 1920s became more and more a believer in telepathy. Ernest Jones, then the, the, direct, the president of the International Psychoanalytic Association as well as the British Psychoanalytic Society, said to him, please be quiet about this. You know, we're just trying to make psychoanalysis respectable. We're just about getting there, the medical authority, and you go and say you believe in telepathy. Freud says, listen, don't worry, okay? If anybody asks, just say it's a personal issue <coughs> like my smoking and my Judaism. <laughs> telepathy, smoking, Judaism. These sort of, there's really interesting Judaism, you know, especially in the anti-Semitic fora, thought of as something which is hidden behind and nevertheless penetrates everything, something somehow sorted. Smoking, too, gets, you know, smoke gets in your eyes, but it gets right through your skin as well and into your lungs. And telepathy, that moment, that, that possibility that one person might be in communication with another as if there is no boundary between them, as if no attempt to speak 
from one to another if needed. In terms of, it's interesting to look at the terminology here. Um, Freud used the, the German term Gedankenübertragen to mean Gedankenübertragen, thought transference, which he said was no different from telepathy, thought transference. And the term used for transference, which is the core of any psychoanalytic encounter, the, um, the situation which, in which uh, what happens with him, you know, a person imagines that the person they're with is somebody other than they were and puts, uh, they really are, and puts ideas and fantasies and so on into them. Transference has the same name. Ubertragen, Gedanken, Ubertragen, thought transference, Ubertragen, therapeutic transference. Telepathy and transference are seen by Freud as in the same kind of domain. Vertical, uh, that was horizontal. Vertical, by that I mean vertical transmission. I'm thinking intergenerationally. I'm thinking about what it is that is passed down from one generation to another, particularly around, uh, the di particularly around um, two things which Freud also worked on, trauma and identity. In his last great work, Moses and Monotheism, Freud works on the idea that he'd already talked about 20 years earlier in Totem and Taboo, works on the idea that there might be something which has happened in the history of the human species which each one of us has to rework in our own lives. And it's a kind of Lamarckian idea that he uses, the acquisition of acquired, you know, acquired, the, the, whatever it's called, acquired characteristics being passed on from one to another. But it's also quite an emblematic and a powerful idea that something that happened previously might still be being worked out in the lives of each one of us. And that, I'm going to return to that in my example I'm going to give you in a moment, the film example. Um, and uh, for Freud, I think that, that that question about the genealogies of trauma and identity is really central, and I think it remains central to us today, so that all the talk we have about trauma, all the stuff about generational passing on, the things about what it means to memorialise something or to forget it, to, to hold something or to forgive it, those kinds of questions are questions about how we are infected in each generation by what has come before. Now, what I would like to do in the few minutes I've got, five, seven, something like that, I'll extend it. Um, oh, look at that. It's going to go wrong, <laughs> no, isn't it? No, it's just I will be getting to yes. this in a moment, yeah. I just thought this was a good place to start from dust, you came. It's a good thing for the end of the conference. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, going to talk, I'm, going to, I'm going to use an example here, which I think is it, it would, it's, it's explicitly about haunting. It's about possession, about how one somebody can be possessed by the spirit of another. But it's also, in its form, um, a, uh, a haunted piece of work. And I need to give you a bit of background, uh, very briskly. So this is the Dibuk. The Dibuk was a play written in, between 1916 and 1920 by Solomon Ansky, um, who was a Russian, um, so, Russian social revolutionary, uh, a Jewish social revolutionary. Um, and uh, first of all, you need to know a little bit about structure here about how this comes about. So Ansky was born in the late 19th century. He was originally from a religious background. He was a Talmudic scholar originally. He was a prodigy. <laughs> Gave it all up, became a revolutionary, very, very well-known journalist. Um, but after the 1905 Russian Revolution, he became more and more interested in the question about what it might mean to have a kind of... Um, he, sorry, as others were also interested in national groups within Russia, so he was interested in what was happening to the Jews. And between 1912 and 1914, he led a very famous ethnographic expedition to Galicia, which is the kind of pale of Jewish settlement, collecting vast amounts of um, materials, uh, recording them, uh, photographing. There's a brilliant book of photographs that he took, were taken by his group at the time. And hearing stories, including lots of stories about Dibuk, 
A dibuk is uh, a, <coughs> a dead soul that enters into a live being, usually a young woman. It's usually a young woman who is, the, uh, who is possessed. Um, and after, in, in, from 1916 to 20, even though Ansky was, no, was not in the least bit religious, he used this idea to explore what it might mean to have a collapsing culture around you and wrote this phenomenal play, um, the Dibbuk, which became the most famous of all Yiddish plays, and indeed was translated into the best-known uh, and most famous Yiddish film, which I'm going to show you a little bit of, made in Poland in 1937 by Michał Um It's very interesting, this play. First of all, it, in itself, it has its own sort of palimpsestic quality. It was written in Yiddish and Russian, um, it was translated into Hebrew by Chaim Nachman Bialik, who's the best known of all um, Hebrew poets. Uh, then Ansky lost the manuscript to it when fleeing the Soviet Union in 1918 and translated it back into Yiddish from the Hebrew version. <coughs> uh, of course, with the death of Yiddish um, after the Holocaust, um, very few people understand the Yiddish now, so that when people now watch it either on stage or, or, or in the film version, they watch it mostly in English and we have English subtitles. So already we have this sense of something that is overlain with different kind of levels of linguistic play. But also, I want to make a point about this phenomenal film. As I say, it was made in 1937 in Poland, um, in Warsaw and in a village called Kazimierz. Uh, the lead actors are, there was a huge uh, Yiddish film um, uh, industry at the time, both in, in, in Europe and in America. There are Yiddish cowboy and Western films. It's really brilliant to watch cowboys and Indians as Yiddish. It's not just Mel Brooks that does this. It's kind of a serious <laughs> Yiddish, Yiddish cowboys. Yiddish-speaking cowboys. It's, uh, there probably were some, I guess, anyway. There were Yiddish-speaking cowboys in Argentina. I don't think they were in America, anyway. It's not the point. So, yeah. So, um, so but what's fascinating... Okay, so there was the lead actors are professionals, and in fact, um, the two main leads... Uh, were saved from the Holocaust because they travelled to New York in 1938 to make a film called Tevye the Milkman, the precursor of Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, and the filming overshot and they, uh, the war broke out, they could never return to Europe. But most of the people that we see in this film were local people brought in as extras from Casimir's, 1937. Within eight years they were all dead. All of them were dead. So what we see when we look at this film is itself a mode of haunting. We watch this film now, we hear Yiddish being spoken in a way that nobody speaks it today, and we see actual real people on screen in the kind of um, uh, temporal sequence of what will happen next in the whole systemic categories of loss. I want to just show you uh, four or five minutes of this, and then I'll sum up, and then we can, if anybody wants to talk more about what you see here, we can do that hopefully in the discussion. The story is really complicated, but I'm going to keep it really simple. There's uh, a, love, two, a pair of lovers, Conon and Leah, and they have been promised to one another by their fathers before they were born. But because of various things that happen, uh, this marriage doesn't take place, and instead Leah is promised to another bridegroom. And Conon trying to make enough money out of mysticism, basically, in order to become the preferred groom, dies. He dies. And the night before uh, the wedding, um, Leah goes, as she's supposed to do, to the, to the cemetery to invite her dead mother to come to the wedding. But instead of inviting her mother, she invites Chonon. 
And what I'm going to show you are two really short clips. One, the most famous bit of this film, which is the dance of death. So it's really good. If any of you are married yet and are planning your wedding, um, it's really good, actually, to <coughs> have a dance of death before the wedding. It kind of gets you into the right frame of mind. <laughs> and, then, and the second bit is I'm going to show you the wedding itself, which is also the moment, the moment of possession. So if we do the...
throws herself on is the grave in the middle of the village of a, a pair of lovers who were killed two centuries beforehand in a pogrom. Lots of these Jewish villages had such, had such graves in the middle of them. And she identifies with that. And then the divot comes and says, you buried me, but I've come back and I will never leave. That's what happens. Now, the last point I want to make about this is a point about this kind of symbolic. The structure of this is that a promise has been made between the two fathers and it's been broken, it's, been, it's not been kept. It's as if the whole social structure has made this promise in which these two young people will come together and create a genealogy, um, and then it fails. And at that moment that the social structure falls apart, so they're left with this kind of question of how do you repair it? Seems like, in this film at least, the only way you could repair a broken social structure is through an impossible relationship between a dead a dead person and a living person. The infection of the living by the dead and the constant, the reference back even across hundreds of years to people who have been killed 200 or more years before. Seems like that's the only way to do it. And indeed, the rest of the film is basically an exorcism, how to get rid of the Dibbuk. It's done in the end in a phenomenally beautiful way, but at the expense of, of course, the bride dying and joining her loved one in the only place they can be together, which is death and explicitly saying, explicitly celebrating what she calls their unborn children, that is, the genealogy breaks down at this point. So just to summarise, my, my, I'm sorry it's so rushed, but my, my, my point is showing you this, is to think about cultures that break apart and how they be can become dramatised through this process of constant infection by the, the past into the present, by the one, the, the dead into the living, <coughs> And of course, you know, um, the, the fading away of possibilities of rescue uh, if, a, if, a social, if a social structure does not keep its promises.
clap at the end of a presentation so that no one has to go through that awkward moment. But why does that awkward moment happen? Uh, what can we do about it? And what does it say about the way that we interact and that we spread behaviors to each other? That's something uh, me and my colleagues studied a few years ago looking at that exact phenomenon of audience applause. So we film people in a room much like we're in now. It was about this size. So we put a camera at the back and we asked uh, these were all first-year undergraduates, and we asked a third-year undergraduate, unknowingly, to give a presentation. Um, everyone was filmed, and we took a picture where we could see each individual in the, in the room when they started clapping. And then one of my colleagues, not me, thankfully, um, but uh, some poor postdoc at the time, had to go through uh, all the videos and actually mark when each person in the room started clapping and in fact, mark every clap they made until they finished as well. Uh, and as we'll see in a minute, uh, individuals typically clap about 20 times. You can imagine you know, about 10 groups, how time-consuming and boring this must have been for them. Um, so what happens is typically we start uh, with a room that's completely empty of clappers like this. The person who's speaking uh, somehow clearly says that the talk is finished. And then by some process, this is just one that I've illustrated here, Clapping spreads through the room until everyone is clapping. And then later, we go through sort of the same process in reverse. People start stopping, and eventually, no one is clapping. Um, and it seems like this might be an infective, contagious process. Um, one where, as people start to clap, they spread that behavior onto others. And that, indeed, is what it looks like when you actually plot how many people are clapping in a room over time? So you start off with just one to two, very small percentage of the room to start with. It grows slowly for a while and then rapidly increases until the room is full and we saturate and there's no one left to infect. Uh, this is just one uh, group that we looked at. If we look at it more generally, <coughs> we see a similar pattern. So this is the average of what happened over the 10 groups that we looked at. So the gray curve is um, them starting clapping. So the black line is sort of our average, and the gray is just the standard deviation over those groups. And then the pink curve is the equivalent for stopping as well. So everyone, a few people start clapping, there's a rapid infection process, there's a saturation. Then at some point, usually just about the time when the room is starting to saturate, some people start stopping as well. And we look through a variety of mechanisms that might explain how the infection spreads and then dies away. Um, I do have a few slides of maths here, but I, uh, for the purpose of brevity, I'm going to skip through them. But we looked at various different ways that the probability that you might start or stop uh, could be propagated by, for example, the number of people in the room who've already started clapping. So a row here indicates how many people have started. And simply another one that might be uh, more like a contagion that people are used to, the number of your neighbors that have started clapping as well. So those are sitting directly next to you. And we tested various models to see which best explained um, the phenomenon that we actually saw. And what we found was that uh, for starting, the best explanation of how people were spreading this behavior was that you were, your probability to start clapping was proportional to the number of people in the room who had already started. Now what this told us is that the most likely mechanism of transmission was the noise of other people clapping in the room. Because with your direct neighbors, you can see what they're doing. 
but many of you on the front row, for example, won't be able to see any of the people behind you. So for you to get infected um, by anyone other than the people sitting right next to you, you need to be infected by a mechanism that doesn't require sight. Uh, we investigated a similar sort of process for how people stop clamping as well, and there it was driven very much by the same sort of phenomenon here, so that simply the number of people who stopped clamping uh, increases the probability you will stop as well, with a slight effect due to people essentially becoming tired. So the more times you've physically clapped yourself already, uh, the more likely you are to stop. And perhaps what's more interesting from a theatrical point of view is that this meant that in groups that were essentially identical, we could get a lot of variation in how long people clapped for, how long it took them to start clapping, how long it took them to stop clapping. So just like that awkward moment at the start when you are waiting to see if anyone's going to clap, there's also an equally sort of <coughs> awkward moment for many people when they feel like they quite like to stop clapping, but everyone is still clapping, so they continue. And I've experienced this myself. I've once in my life been to an opera. It was a horrific experience. I don't know why anyone would do it. Um, and they came back on for something like five rounds of applause afterwards, a phenomenon I was not remotely familiar with. My friends later told me that it was somehow normal. Um, and so there I am, saying, oh my god, I'm going to die. Red hands, raw, bleeding. And I really don't know why this happens, but the peer pressure to continue clapping was very strong. And because um, this peer pressure is very strong at the start, when you're nervous about starting clapping, it's very strong when you're clapping. When the group starts and when it stops, it's largely driven by the chance events of one or two individuals being the first to lead the rest of the group, to being the first to bring the infection to the room, which is why it's so good to have, for example, people uh, like this guy at um, comic events saying this is when you're supposed to clap, so it gives everyone in the room permission to start, or the, the person who's just introduced the speaker giving the first round of applause, because then everyone knows that it's okay, and they're not going to look like an idiot for being the first. And what does this have to do with theatre beyond the obvious um, factor that you know, controls how much applause we might get at the end? Uh, so one thing we should learn is that the amount of applause, the length of applause, may not, may not be completely a good representation of how great the performance was. Uh, but more generally, uh, when at the start of this presentation I asked you to raise your hands, and that obviously is a very similar sort of process. So any sort of performance that involves audience engagement is going to go through similar processes to these as well. So if you want um, to have a performance that requires the audience to engage, or even just for the audience to laugh or clap at various points in the performance, it's worth noting that you should be trying to give them explicit permission to do that. Um, I certainly know there's been debates in the classical music world about whether people should clap at the end of different movements of a piece, or clap just at the end of the entire piece. Um, if people have, if the performers have a specific thing that they want, they really ought to give the audience that permission if they want to get that effect. Um, likewise, uh, if we want audiences to um, come up for the comedic performance, perhaps having one stooge, for example, who comes up first, would let the rest of the room know that it was okay and safe do so. That's the thing I have.